Fanboy, episode 90. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 90th edition of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, yeah, I said 90th edition. It feels crazy to even say that, to think that I've created 90 episodes of anything, and the fact that I, that means that episode 100 is right around the corner. I guess I'd better uh, prepare something special for you for that one, shouldn't I? Hmm. But uh, yeah, so you know what? I'm doing really well today. I'm in a very good mood this week, and there's a bunch of reasons why. So let's go ahead. I think that's going to be the theme this week, reasons that I am in a good mood. And you know what? I, I feel like I owe you something like that, right? Because what happened? You know, a couple weeks, no, a couple months ago, you know, I put up an episode where things weren't doing so hot. If you recall, there was an episode there where like for the first half hour, I tried to give you like a standard show, and then I just kind of had to stop, and for the last half hour, I kind of got weird with you a little bit, and I spoke about things going on in my mind and in my heart and things I was dealing with for, you know, for a few months leading up to that point. Um, you know, so if I, if, if I felt comfortable opening up with you when things were that low, I feel like I owe, let, you know, I, I owe you some discussion of when things are good. And things are really good right now. And it's not even like personally things are good. This week was fine. You know, the, the website's doing great. I, I love my team. We're adding some new writers. But that's not even what I'm excited about. What I'm excited about is the, the moment in time we're living in. In all kinds of facets of ways, as fanboys and fangirls and geeks and dorks. Like right now, it's a really awesome time to love the things that we all love. And... You know, I just, it tickles me. So let's let, let's talk a little bit about what's going on. So right now, the big story today is Captain Marvel. But I'm not referring to the Marvel one. I'm referring to Shazam right now. Because last night, the social media embargo on Shazam was lifted. Now, for those of you keeping track, yesterday was March 7th. The movie doesn't open until April 5th. And they're already allowing people to talk about it. And they're already doing advanced fan screenings around the country. And those people are allowed to tweet and talk about it as well. Then the review embargo is rumored to be released as long, almost two weeks before the movie comes out. We'll see if that actually comes to pass. But right now the word on the street is that Warner Brothers is feeling so confident about Shazam, and that's why they're doing all this. And this lines up with stuff I've been reporting to you guys for a long time. If you listen to this show, then you th this should not be a surprise to you. I think I first mentioned like six months ago that the studio knew it had something special on its hands here, that they it was testing well internally, that the buzz around it was, this movie is going to be a big win. But you know, even with that, I was curious to see if it would actually pan out, because it doesn't always. You know, I, mean, I, I still remember, I get like, you know, I, I, I get post-traumatic stress thinking about what happened with Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Because if you recall, I want to say the end of the summer of 2015, there was like a report that came out that Warner Brothers screened BVS and they loved it. 
And they gave Ben Affleck a standing ovation for his work as Batman and all that sort of stuff. And mind you, that, you know, that's all kind of before I was really in the scoop game and really kind of investigating things, you know, de you know going deeper than the surface of a story. I wasn't doing that stuff back in 2015. So I don't even know if that's true, but I just remember hearing it. I remember like, there were headlines all over the place about how BVS has great buzz and the studio is super psyched. And then we know what happened, you know, then it started testing with actual audiences and the feedback, the studio, they kind of felt like they got caught with their pants down. They were blindsided by the fact that general audiences were like not exactly in love with the film. And then the rest, as they say, is history. But, you know, so I still remember that when I think about DC projects getting strong internal buzz in advance, you know, I always kind of try to hold my breath to see like, OK, well, that's great. But let's see what like people outside of the studio, people who don't have Warner Brothers logos on their paychecks, let's see what they think of the movie. So the fact that yesterday the embargo lifted on social media responses and almost entirely everything I've seen so far has been how wonderful the movie is. You know, and some of them kind of temper their 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 praise by saying, you know, that it's it's prose definitely outweighs its cons, but, you know, they are implying that there are cons and all that sort of stuff. And of course, you know, no movie's really perfect. And, you know, I, I never really thought that this was going to be like some monumental cultural event comic book movie or something like Wonder Woman or anything like that, or even Black Panther last year. But, you know, I knew it would, you know, I, I knew it would, I knew it would, it would be well liked based on everything I'd heard. And everything that's being said about it is that it's a very fun, enjoyable, well-made movie. It's another way to sort of continue the momentum that began with Aquaman in December. This new positive wave that DC films are writing. These first films that are released under the watchful eye of Walter Hamada. And if anyone rolled their eyes at the mention of Walter Hamada, we got some talking to do today. And I think we're going to get to that in a little bit, because I also want to talk about the other Captain Marvel first. But, you know, we do have to talk a little bit about misconceptions, misconceptions about Hamada, misconceptions about Jeff Johns, because there are some things I've seen these last couple days that makes me realize that some people out there are operating under some false assumptions, and they, they perhaps saw some, you know, uh, bad information maybe on Reddit or something somewhere because some of you are missing the ball in a big way with regard to how things are actually taking shape behind the scenes and who's really doing what and who's in and who's out. So before we get into the clarification of all that and why where we're sitting right now as, as, as a DC fandom, we should be doing backflips before we get into that. Let's talk about the other Captain Marvel, because that is the other big story today, right? And in theory, I should have probably opened with that, because that movie opens today. It is the big pop culture zeitgeist event taking place right now. And, you know, I think it's one of the reasons I am in a good mood, by the way, because I get to see it later tonight with a bunch of you guys. That's right. Tonight is the Revenger watch party for Captain Marvel. I'm going to meet up with around 20 other people, Re Revenge of the Fans contributors, podcast 
co-hosts of mine, you know, Vanessa and Brett and others. We're going to have readers and listeners there. We're going to get to ex experience this movie together. So I'm, you know, that's one of the other reasons that I'm in a good mood today is I get to see a bunch of you and I get to see one of these epic movies with you. But now let's talk about this movie, you know, aside from the fact that I get to see it with you and that's awesome. So it opened last night and the Thursday preview numbers are very strong. And it's funny because there's been all this like doom and gloom, all this concern. Oh, is Brie Larson unlikable or if some of her comments kind of rub people the wrong way? And there's all this like if you're on Twitter, it's like watching a burning dumpster fire on, you know, when it comes to all this Captain Marvel versus Shazam stuff, it's really kind of gotten out of hand. And the Marvel versus DC nonsense continues to sort of plague these movies. And it's really upsetting. But... You know, it's interesting after all of that, though, after all the attempts to make viral noise to get people against Brie Larson, after all of the talk, you know, all, all of the tampering with the audience meter on the Rotten Tomatoes site, with all the different ways people have tried to hurt this movie, hate to break it to you, folks, but right now, it's Thursday previews put it just shy of Black Panther numbers, Okay. Black Panther opened last year, one month prior. They, you know, they opened in mid-February, and their Thursday previews were around 25 million. And according to the early estimates, it looks like Captain Marvel opened to somewhere between 22 and 24 million. I don't the I, I don't think the actuals have come in yet, but that's per deadline. And if it did open anywhere in the low to mid 20s, then I, I, I hate to break it to anyone who was rooting against this movie, which, by the way, is a silly thing to do. But if you are rooting against this, I'm sorry, you are in for a very harsh weekend ahead of you. Because here's the thing. Marvel Studios, and people kind of overlook this. People don't seem to understand the value of having an established track record with an audience. So Marvel Studios, at this point, through 11 years now almost through 11 years, has established such a trust with its audience and with general audiences and with hardcore audiences in general. They've laid down such a framework, such a groundwork, I should say, for everything, you know, this entire universe, that people are willing to give it a shot, even if it doesn't necessarily look like it's up their alley. And that's, you know, that's a neat benefit that you only get when you're consistent, when you know who your audience is, when you play to them and you, you know, and you take care of your audience. I'm not saying that other franchises haven't or, you know, other, other studios or whatnot have failed in that regard. I'm not pointing a finger, but it's very evident that with Marvel Studios, you know, they've established such a nice level of trust. They've established a bond with the general public that even if there is negative buzz or even if the trailers have been underwhelming or even if you're like me and you've seen some of these trailers for Captain Marvel, and you're not exactly convinced that Brie Larson was the person for the job, you're still going to go see it. I'm going to still go see it. They're getting my money tonight. You know what I mean? Like, this is the kind of thing that happens when you win over people's trust. So it's, you know, I'm happy for them. This is just, you know, this means that, you know, these kinds of weekends are the fruits of their labor. Because, you know, Captain Marvel as a whole, I haven't heard or felt a ton of buzz around it. 
Yeah, maybe I'm biased. Maybe it's just the algorithms of my particular social media. But when I check stuff, you know, I, I do this every single day. Every single day, I have to assign stories to writers. Every single day, I have to monitor the top trends. Every single day, I have to notice, okay, which articles got looked at the most, all that sort of stuff. And as someone who sits from my unique vantage point, I can tell you from my own experience as an editor-in-chief and as someone who's been covering this now for over five years, the buzz around Captain Marvel is very sort of minimal. It doesn't have a lot of the same big-time glow on it as a lot of other Marvel films have. And it's interesting to see, you know, because remember, they put a lot of eggs in the Captain Marvel basket, and I find that fascinating. There were so many quotes last year about how, you know, from people like the, you know, Joe and Anthony Russo, like from Kevin Feige, from all kinds of people who were, you know, in power at Marvel Studios, there were all these comments about how, you know, she's the most important character in the MCU, the most powerful character in the MCU. She's the one who's going to be the answer to everything we saw in Infinity War. She's going to be like the big ba-boom, you know, like all this fuss was made about Captain Marvel. And it's interesting now to see, like, what do they do if people don't like her that much? You know what I mean? Because, like, I look, you know, I've taken just a cursory glance of some of the reviews because I don't really want them to inform, you know, my opinion tonight. I want to go in as fresh as possible. So I haven't read too in-depthly, but I've noticed that, like, one sort of recurring thing I've noticed is that people think the movie is pretty good. Very few people are absolutely in love with it, but that Larson seems a little bit out of place or a little miscast or like they didn't really use her right. Because we all know she's a talented actress. You know, she's an Academy Award winner. She's beyond proven herself as an actress in films like Room. So we know she's got the chops, but there seems to be this sense that like she didn't really sink her teeth into this role. And maybe that's the script's fault or maybe that's the director's fault. You know, I'm not here to assign blame, but it is interesting to note that she seems to sort of stick out. You know, it seems to be like the first Marvel casting I've seen where people are like kind of not really sold. You know, in a lot of ways, a lot of people have accepted almost all the other Marvel castings. Now, even the ones that were a little unconventional or the ones that stirred up some online controversies, like when Idris Elba, who we'll talk more about later, was cast as Heimdall. But, um, you know, Aside from little silly controversies like that, by and large, Marvel gets a lot of credit for their casting, for finding actors who really embody these roles and who are able to bring these particular versions of these characters to life so well. And this seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, if anyone out there can remember another time where there was such a sort of tepid reaction to the lead actor in a Marvel movie, you know, by all means, you know, Come, tell me. Tell me I'm wrong and I'll be happy to eat my words. But as things stand, Captain Marvel looks like it's going to have a really good weekend. I think it's primarily going to do that on the back of Marvel's trust with audiences. I feel like if this was a if this was the first Marvel movie ever, let's just hypothetically say that, right? Let's say that this movie was the beginning of the MCU. I don't think it would have the kind of weekend it's happening. You know, the, the, the kind of weekend that it's having, I should say. So that's just kind of, you know, we'll, we'll see how things play out. We'll report on all the box office numbers next week, as always. I'm very curious to see how this movie does. I think it's going to do pretty darn well. But more than anything, I want to see how this impacts 
her role moving forward. Are they going to continue full steam ahead with this idea that Captain Marvel is the next big thing, the next face of the franchise, the next central figure? Because remember, the rumor is that we're going to lose Iron Man in, in Endgame. So we're, and there's even the possibility that we're going to lose Captain America in Endgame. So a lot of people are like, well, who's going to be the face? Right. And if this were comic books, you'd probably say Spider-Man. But remember, there's the whole complications of the Sony Marvel Studios deal. So if we're losing Cap and we're losing Iron Man, you know, we're going to need that that central, you know, figure here in the MCU. And by all accounts, for the longest time, that was going to be Captain Marvel. And maybe it still will be, by the way. I don't want to necessarily sound like I think they're already changing their mind. You know, for all we know... Captain Marvel's going to have a historic weekend and maybe the, 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 the buzz around Larson's going to get completely flipped and more people are going to love her than are lukewarm to her. And I, this entire you know, segment of the show is going to be nullified. But I don't think that's going to be the case. But uh, all right. So before we get off of Captain Marvel, I do want to touch on something else. I want to talk about the audience scores on Rotten Tomatoes, because a lot of people there's been a lot of chatter about that. And a lot of you know, there's been some some sort of funny business going on with the Rotten Tomatoes audience scores. And people are ginning up all of these interesting controversies and yada, 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 conspiracy theories. But let me kind of break it down for you. All that's really happened here is that people took something that operated on the honor code, which is really just, you know, it, it was supposed to be just a neat little feature on a website where you really go to see what the critics say, but there's an audience meter there, and they put, you know, that, that exists on the site just to get people to kind of click and to sort of see, all right, you know, they're expecting you to operate on good faith when it comes to this kind of thing. They put it there because they expect, okay, if, you've, if you're voting, if you're giving a rating to the movie, it's obviously because you've seen it already, you know? And they're not asking you to show proof. They're just giving you a button to click, and it's up to you if you want to click it. It's not really that serious. But what's happened is people have taken this thing that was that's handled in good faith, this thing that's supposed to run on the honor system, and they've added an agenda to it. That's why you see these campaigns of people who want to, like, you know, firebomb the audience score for a particular movie if it upsets their political ideology. That sort of stuff's been happening for the last year and a half. You know, you, you don't have to look far to see films that have been targeted by groups of people who have their entire mission now is to spam the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's clearly, it's been compromised. And, you know, I just want people to remember that because... Of course, Rotten Tomatoes has to take action. Of course, now they have to try to like counteract all of the manipulations that have been going on, all the different people who are trying to nefariously hijack the audience score system. Of course, they have to. Otherwise, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's going to give improper information to people who are coming to the website. People come to Rotten Tomatoes to figure out what's the buzz on a movie. And now, if one of those scores is going to look insanely low and it's being done because hundreds and thousands of people have gone and they've put in, they've created dummy accounts and they've voted multiple times for a movie they've never seen. And if you go and you look, there are pages where there's like the same comment posted several different times from different users. Like there is literal manipulation at play here. 
So I don't want to hear your conspiracies about all oh, Rotten Tomatoes is sure bending over backwards to protect Marvel because they're in the pocket of Disney. I don't want to hear any of that crap. Listen, the site has no choice but to try to counteract all of these attempts to sort of undermine and sort of like hack the system. So I would not be surprised now if they just do away with it entirely because at this point it has been compromised. And if you're someone who's spending a lot of time focusing on the audience score at Rotten Tomatoes, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I've said this before on this very show that the only audience metrics that really matter are the ones that involve in-person polling. The, that would be cinema score and that would be post track. Those are the only two really, you know, those are the only agencies that the industry pays any attention to when it comes to how did the audience like a film. So anything about an audience score on Rotten Tomatoes or on IMDb or on Metacritic, all that stuff goes right out the window because people who've never seen a film can go vote on it. So they've always just been there practically for show. Probably for website click reasons too because, you know, this is just a little inside baseball for you. But did you know that a site will be seen as doing better and get better ad revenue and get you know better support from advertisers if people interact with the site whether it's clicking a link that's within the site whether it's clicking to stop a video which by the way that's why some sites autoplay their videos because they know you're going to have to click to stop it and that click counts towards their totals it counts towards you know it makes their numbers look good when they're trying to get advertisers so there's all these different ways that sites they want you to physically interact with the site whether it's clicking on videos following links using buttons within the site itself to get you to different parts as opposed to using your browsers back and forward number you know back and forward buttons you know sites they want you to physically touch them because it helps them so when you when you see like stuff like you know, like the, the 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 audience scores just kind of circling back to that is really just a way to get people to interact with the site. If you're going there and you're clicking on that and you're typing how many stars it should have and you're writing out a little you know blurb as to what you thought of the movie, that counts towards their interaction, folks. So it's funny how like in a way if you're if you're going to Rotten Tomatoes right now to spam a button, you're still helping them which is the irony. And that's why, you know, so many of these toxic, negative fan campaigns sabotage themselves. They don't realize the harm that they're doing to themselves. You know, and I've spoken about it before in ways that are, that are slightly more philosophical. Like, for example, we all want great, high-quality creators to be involved with these properties we love so much. And yet... We think it's okay to pester creators on social media and go after actors and go after writers. If they do anything that we didn't care for, we let them hear it and we write petitions about it and we create hashtags and memes about it. People go out of their minds trying to decry things that a creator will come up with that they disagree with. Now, what happens if you're a creator looking at doing a, a movie like this or a TV show or one of these beloved geek properties.
And you see that every time a big profile creator gets attached to one of these, they have to deal with these fans who are standing on their necks, Monday morning quarterbacking them, questioning every decision they make, questioning the supposed actors on a short list, questioning, oh, what kind of suit are you going to use? If you don't use this suit, then you're a failure. Oh, why would you recast so-and-so? Like, Fans who try to do these campaigns, they really don't realize how they're hurting everything by being so negative. Because now, I got to tell you, if I'm some huge Hollywood talent, if I'm one of these people who can go in there with a Midas touch and make a, make a hit movie, and I see that the fan base for that franchise or that particular property is extremely toxic and they're gonna pester me. And if, 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 if this film doesn't go the way they wish, now they're gonna wish negative on all of my future movies. Like if I'm, one, if I'm a creator, I'm gonna be anxious about signing on for one of these kinds of properties. And this is what I mean, you know, when you go toxic, when you go negative, when you go trying to knock things down as opposed to just simply supporting the things that you love, you end up hurting yourself. Don't you understand that? Like it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And you end up supporting sometimes the people who are doing the things you don't like. The same way, like, you know, like I said, when you're voting on stuff at Rotten Tomatoes and you're trying to hurt you know, Rotten Tomatoes and you're trying to hurt a movie, you're actually strengthening Rotten Tomatoes and you're creating more headlines about the movie. So you're helping promote the movie because remember, there's no press. No press is bad press. So there's just so many different examples. I and mean, I could probably go on and on, but so many different examples of the way that toxic fandom always ends up hurting their own cause. And helping those of, you know, like, like, like another example before we go on. You know, what about the people who, who will see a movie just be, just to hate watch it, just so they can talk crap about it and go online and try to spoil it? The people who, you know, well, guess what? They still got your money. They still, you know, they don't care whether or not you bought the ticket ironically or if you bought the ticket because you're excited to see it. All they know is they got your vote. Your movie ticket is your vote at the voting booth, at the box office, and you voted for that movie. So now the people who made that movie are thinking, all right, we're going to make more of this because we got your money. You know, it's just, you know, I, I, think I, I think you guys got my point. And I don't think a lot of my followers are the kinds who get into the negative, toxic campaigns out there. At least I hope not. But if you are someone who participates in this attempt to knock down or attack things that you don't agree with, as opposed to just, I'm going to focus on the things I love and ignore the things that don't interest me. You know, I just, I, I hope you take some of this food for thought because it's really sort of alarming to see the way that people think they can interact online when it comes to all this stuff. But uh, I digress. Um, we're going to move on now from the audience scores. And what we're going to get into is, isn't it interesting how last week I was talking all about how the James Gunn firing at the hands of Disney was going to age poorly and that his brand was going to do a complete 180 and that you know Warner Brothers and DC stand to, to stand to gain a huge deal by now having Gunn in their you know in their stable of talent and now this week 
it was like all James Gunn all the time. It, it's just, it's fascinating how that worked out. And, you know, totally coincidentally, mind you. But I just had a feeling. I could sense, like, you know what? Something's about to happen here. Because you could sense that pop culture has sort of moved on from the James Gunn controversy of last July. Because in the grand scheme of things, with everything that's going on in around the world, in pop culture, in terms of scandals, in terms of all the different things that people have gone up in flames for, what he did, when you really look back on it, doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? He got fired over some old tweets. He didn't get fired because he abused anyone. He didn't get fired because he did anything. He got fired because he said some silly words. And I knew that like in time, I, I thought it would take a little longer than this, but in time, once that kind, once that has really disappeared, James Gunn just, is just going to go back to being one of the top filmmakers in Hollywood. And this week, what did we get? We got a trailer for Brightburn, the second trailer, which, yes, he didn't direct it, but it's written by his brothers. It's promoted everywhere as James Gunn's Brightburn. He's the producer. It's got it, it's the James Gunn brand. And people are loving what they've seen so far from Brightburn. Aside from the initial sort of confusion about, like, why does this look so much like Man of Steel and some people thinking that it was a ripoff without realizing that it was actually an on-purpose sort of homage because what they're doing is they're taking Man of Steel and kind of putting their own unique twist on it and they want you to think of Man of Steel. So aside from that little, you know controversy from last year this week the 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 buzz around that brightburn 2 trailer was huge a lot of people cannot wait to see this movie about this alternate take where you know what if the alien who came from another planet and crash landed in kansas what if instead of being a hero they went the other way and it's a fascinating sort of what if sort of elseworld tale and again james gunn is getting lots of high fives for that and then what happened on wednesday we found out that, yes, Will Smith is out, you know, that we found that out last week. But on Wednesday, we found out that he's being replaced by Idris Elba. Idris Elba. Are you kidding me? The guy who, like, he's like on everyone's fan cast for everything. Isn't it funny? He's one of these people. His name comes up for everything. People are like, we'd love to see him be the first black James Bond. We'd love to see him be the first black Batman. We'd love to see him play John Stewart, the Green Leo, the John Stewart Green Lantern. And now here he is in James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, taking over for the role of Deadshot. I don't think anyone necessarily saw him entering the worlds of DC quite this way, but here it is. And listen, you don't secure an actor like that unless that actor is, you know, believes in the project, believes in the filmmaker, and wants in on this. So James Gunn went out there and nabbed the top fan cast, one of the top fan casts in the world, Idris Elba, who everyone wants for everything, is now in the Suicide Squad. Then... Uh, the next day, yesterday, Thursday, came this rumored list of the uh, of the characters who are going to be involved in the Suicide Squad. This tells me, by the way, that he must, someone must have seen the first draft. That means that the film has already sort of come together enough that that you know that they're able to start casting. There's already all these you know the murmurs about the characters being included. So that means that there is a that a first draft must be in existence somewhere, or at least a really well thought out treatment. 
So there's been a lot of movement on the Suicide Squad. And I want to talk about that a little bit because it fascinates me, the different ways that people, you know, digest certain bits of information. Because when that news came out yesterday about the characters who are supposedly making up his team, his Suicide Squad, you know, I saw a lot of people like negative down on it. And I just don't get it. And listen, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to tell your opinion is wrong. If that's how you feel, I respect you for that. But now hear me out. Um, you know, James Gunn has a, has a knack for, for, for oddities, for obscure, weird sort of characters, off the wall sort of settings. He has a, he, he, he enjoys a little bit of the absurd. And you see that very clearly in pretty much all of his movies, even the stuff that he hasn't directed, the stuff that he's just produced or written, stuff like the Belco experiment. If you look at Super, if you look at, you know, Dawn of the Dead, which he wrote for Zack Snyder, like if you look at his general, you know, resume, he loves going for stuff that's a little off the beaten path, that's quirky, that's like kind of twists things. Kind of, it's not exactly the way you'd expect it. Almost like I was saying last week, how Warner Brothers likes to do, where they like to take something you're familiar with, but then kind of give it to you with a twist, as opposed to just here's exactly what you expected. So James Gunn is very much he has that same sort of approach to filmmaking and to storytelling, and that's why when I look at these characters that he's looking at for Suicide Squad, to me I'm excited by the possibilities of it. Because I know that he's going to make these things look really awesome. I mean, look, look at Guardians of the Galaxy. Say what you want about the jokey nature of the of, of the two movies. Say what you want about the fact that it's a little lightweight and fluffy because it was in the MCU and you know, all that sort of stuff. Say what you want. But you can't tell me that it wasn't an exquisite looking movie. Especially like the, actually both of them really. Even number two, with all of its silly stuff with Pac-Man, like visually, it, I remember sitting in the theater going, you know what, this movie's kind of nonsense, but it's a lot of fun to look at. So we know that he has an eye for, for bringing these things to vivid life. And when I think about the sort of dark, seedy underworld premise for Suicide Squad, about the fact that this is supposed to be about a band of misfits. It's supposed to be about a group of people who you would never think would come together for a good cause. That's exactly what this series is supposed to be about. A bunch of weird, off-the-wall, misfit, oddball characters having to come together towards a common goal. Thematically, it is similar to Guardians of the Galaxy, but I think you're crazy if you think this is just going to be Guardians DC style. You know what I mean? Because inherently the world is darker. You know, Batman's rogues, if you look at him, if you look at the, 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 the general sort of trappings of a good Suicide Squad story, it's always about the dark, twisted members of Batman's rogues gallery. It's always these eclectic, off-the-beaten-path type characters. And if you ask me, who better to bring that seedy underworld of Gotham to life than James Gunn? Because here's the thing. I told you guys this. I was not a big James Gunn guy, really, until about three weeks ago when I gave Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 its third chance to win me over. And like I told you last week, it really did that. 
Now, to follow up on that, though, Guardians 2 stayed the same for me. I did see it last week, and I thought maybe with this renewed respect I have, or this newfound, I should say, respect I have for James Gunn, maybe I'll appreciate Volume 2 more this time. But no, I saw it last week with my kids, uh, pretty much the same exact setting and scenario as when I saw the first one a few weeks ago with them. And yeah, once again, it just let me down. It felt like, oh, so much potential, so much, you know, so much groundwork laid for a very emotional journey. And instead, a lot of it was played for laughs and it was sort of, you know, it was kind of a hollow experience, if you ask me. But the good news is it didn't really deter my newfound respect for Gunn because with that first movie, I really saw something this time around. I really saw something. I now understood why some people think that he is, in fact, a visionary director. I remember I, for, I scoffed at that. Last year when they put the uh, the first Brightburn teaser out and in the opening titles, it said, you know, from producer James Gunn, the visionary behind Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm like, oh, they got to be clowning. They got to be joking. They got to be using the term visionary as a way to sort of like you know, continue that Man of Steel thing, right? Because a lot of like Zack Snyder's pr uh, promotion will say stuff like from the visionary man who gave you the Watchmen. You know, they like to use that term visionary for Zack. So I thought, okay, they only used visionary in Brightburn for Gunn because he's trying to make, you know, he's trying to continue to lean in to how this film is almost sort of a spoof on Man of Steel. But when I saw Guardians three weeks ago, I'm like, you know what? Homeboy is a visionary. So what, what I like about what, you know, what he does, what I like about his strengths, because he's got weaknesses. You know, we've seen the weaknesses in volume two. But what I like about his strengths is that he seems to have a bit of that thing that's almost like George Lucas in a way. Now, hear me out. I know that's like a crazy comparison. But what Lucas did so wonderfully with the original trilogy was it was such a feast of imagination. Watching those original films, especially if you look at, you know, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, as he started to really kind of find his groove, you know, even if you thought Return of the Jedi was a bit of a, you know, a, a down note and you didn't love it as much as the other ones, you know, visually, the, the imagination on display, the costumes, the settings, the way it really takes you, the viewer, into a whole other place. You know, I don't think the original trilogy can be topped in those regards. And I felt that way watching Guardians of the Galaxy this time around, where like, I felt like I was completely someplace else. You know, the way the characters interacted, the way the music and the cinematography and the set design and everything about that movie came together, I found it to be just over, you know, overloaded, over brimming, over percolating with imagination. And that's where I realized that Gunn has got an eye for bringing quirky, interesting things to vivid life. So that's why I'm tickled to see what he's going to come up with for characters like King Shark and Polka Dot Man and Peacemaker and Ratcatcher, if those end up being the actual characters in the movie itself. You know, remember, I think King Shark was even rumored for the first movie and then David Ayer ultimately went another way with it. And we are still early on in the process. I don't see this film filming until later this year or early next year because it's not coming out till 
2021. You know, so what's the rush? So there's still time. Things could change. But assuming that Collider is correct, assuming that Jeff Snyder is correct about these characters, I don't see why people are up in arms about it. Yes, okay, so they're missing uh, like an A-lister, I guess. But remember, they're going to have Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn in there. They're going to have Idris Elba's Deadshot in there. Those are kind of going to be the faces. You know, I, I'm not sure how much Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn will be in the film. I don't know how big her part is. But, you know, I feel like they're supposed to be the anchor points. And I think they could probably make King Shark really appealing and really interesting. Um, but you don't really need A-listers. You know, I feel like that almost betrays the central concept of what makes the Suicide Squad an interesting property. Because I don't go there because I want to see a team that's Joker, Penguin, Two-Face, Killer Croc, and, uh, you know, who's another big, you know, the Riddler. You know, I don't want to see the best rogues ever. I want to see those, like, I want to see the oddities. That's what I want to see. And I have a, I have a very good feeling this, that, that James Gunn is going to get real strange with us on this Suicide Squad movie. And I, for one, cannot wait to see what he does with these, like, bizarre characters. To me, I'm picturing stuff... That's going to feel like that first time that we walked into the cantina in most Eisley in A New Hope. That feeling when you walk into the thing and there's all these aliens in weird costumes and it's it feels kind of familiar, but it also feels very alien and intimidating. I imagine James Gunn having a lot of most Eisley cantinas in this movie. You know, we're like we're we're seeing a side of Gotham that we've never really gotten to see on film before. You know, so I, I just, I feel like everyone's got to take a chill pill. I think Gunn is going to do some really fun, really creative kind of dark things with the Suicide Squad because that's really outside of his Disney resume. That tends to be what he does. And by the way, like, I hope he goes practical for a lot of this. You know, I know some of these characters, especially like King Shark, we're all expecting a big CG monster. And listen, I maybe he should be, you know, maybe he should be, but... I would not have any issue if King Shark is handled in much the way that Killer Croc was handled in Suicide Squad. Have it be a guy in a suit with a lot of augmentation, maybe add some digital flourishes, but I would like it to be a guy in a suit. Let me explain why. Let me explain why. Because you're kind of circling back to the original trilogy, right? And some of those, you know, some of the great fantasy films from the 70s and 80s. You know, one of the reasons why I think some of those movies are seen as so charming and why they're so filled with great little quirky moments that you don't really see in the modern sci-fi epics. Or that's why, like, you know, that's why the prequels were kind of, you know, frowned upon by fans because there was a lot of CG in those. One of the reasons I think that there's a big difference is the human effect. And what I mean by that is this. When you have an actor in a suit you're fundamentally going to have a different performance than a CG character that's trying to mimic what an actor would do or where it's or, or where it's really just an animator deciding what this character should do because let me just tell you like for, from from an actor right you know, I in another life I was an actor and it's still something that I uh, I love a great deal um, you know there's this understanding that, being in a costume or a mask or under some heavy makeup 
it brings out a lot of creativity in people. You know, in, in the book Building a Character by Konstantin Stanislavski, one of the great acting professors of, you know, ever, one of the acting best acting teachers ever, who kind of helped put together what everyone calls, you know, the method, you know, you hear about method acting. A lot of that comes from the, 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 the seeds planted by Stanislavski. You know, he was talking once about when he was a young actor in class and he didn't know what to do about a particular character. He didn't know what he was going to present. But then he went to the costume shop and he started kind of piecing together. Oh, if I put on this hat and if I put on this coat and if I put on this beard, then he looked in the mirror and he didn't see himself. He saw, you know, he was a young man, I think like a, maybe 17, 18 or maybe early 20s. He saw a jaded narcissistic critic in the mirror looking back at him who was like a guy in his 50s or 60s who thought way too much of himself and suddenly you know as an actor he was able to work outside in he was able to look in the mirror and go oh, how would this guy walk how would he carry himself how would he respond to a stranger saying hello you know he it, it automatically informs the way you move, the way you speak, the way you conduct yourself, being in a costume like that. Because your imagination runs wild. Think think about the anonymity people feel online. Just look at like Twitter or Reddit or anywhere. A a anytime someone can't really see your face, you feel like you can do a lot more than you normally would. That's how you get people who are like keyboard warriors and all that sort of stuff, by the way. And that's how you get people who you know act online in ways that they would never act in person. The same thing happens to actors because as soon as your face is obscured and you realize, huh, I'm in a room full of people who can't really see the real me, all of a sudden you get to tap in to your imagination in a way that is unfathomable. You know, Josh Brolin had some great quotes about that, about how he put together his Thanos performance and about what a trip it was to be there with all the CGI masking and whatever. And I know it almost sounds like I'm contradicting myself, right? Because I'm talking about using practical effects and now I'm talking about Josh Brolin, who was one of the best special effects ever. But the through line here is that actors love the freedom that comes with a mask, the freedom that comes, you know, the, the creativity that comes to life when you're not just your own flesh and blood standing in front of a camera. And that applies to practical effects. That applies to, when you think back on all the like old fantasy stuff that so many people love, you look back on like the never-ending story and Labyrinth and Legend and the original trilogy and the first Indiana Jones movies. You know, a lot of a lot of the weird sort of quirky stuff that we saw and all, and all those great 80s horror movies from back in the day, The Blob, all of John Carpenter's stuff. Part of what makes those movies so endearing and so fun to watch, or Tavo Borrego, I'm sure, would want me to mention uh, Big Showdown in Little China or something like that, right? Um, so did I just do something sacrilegious? Did I, did I misquote the name of the movie? I still have to see it, Davo. I'm so sorry. I will. I promise. But um, when you look at these movies, or you, Gremlins, you know, the fact that it's real people in suits, even if they're just background players, even if they are just those little aliens in the background at the, at the cantina in Mos Eisley, the, actors will naturally find fun, quirky things to do. If you have tentacles, you're going to use your tentacles. If you have a long, you know, snout nose that, that, that the costume designer gave you, you're going to find fun things to do with that nose that you might not have done if they gave you a different mask. 
You know, there's something about putting an actual performer in an actual costume that makes all of this stuff really read a lot more authentically. It's much better than when it's just pure strict animation and it's someone, you know, it, it's someone sitting at a computer trying to decide, well, how would this weird alien walk? You know, it's, it, it's a very different animal and it doesn't replicate that human effect, the effect of having an actual trained actor use their imagination to tap in and create something special. So a part of me, kind of circling back now to James Gunn and the Suicide Squad, I hope as much as possible he tries to keep these characters flesh and blood. I'd rather see people, I'd rather see a half man, half shark who's played by a man than a 15 foot hulking thing. You know what I mean? But you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I think that human effect gets overlooked sometimes. And, you know, it's because a lot of people don't necessarily understand what goes into putting together performance. They, they just think, oh, actors have it easy. They just have to learn their lines and stand in a particular spot and deliver their lines. But there's a lot that goes into creating a full 360, fully fleshed out character, you know. So, um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to touch on that before we move on from Suicide Squad. And... You know, it, it's interesting. What happened with Guardians of the Galaxy, the 180 I had on that, makes me want to go back and re-explore other movies. I don't know if anyone else has ever done that. But, you know, I want to go back now, and I'm trying to think of other movies that's similar to the first Guardians. Everyone else I know loved them. And I, for whatever reason, was eh on it. I want to try and see what everyone else is talking about. So I've been trying to brainstorm films that I that that deserve another viewing, and I'm, I'm I'll let you know which ones I come up with, and maybe I'll do some video reviews for those or something because I I do find it interesting to re-explore movies from a different vantage point to be like okay I saw this when I was 20 and I was you know and I was at this current stage of my life, how does 35 year old me look at this movie now you know what I mean because that's how you know art. We all see, we all get different things out of art, and it speaks to us on different levels at different times in our lives. So, because the reason I, I'm so sort of stuck on this is what a profound shift I had with Guardians. It's amazing to go from, eh, whatever, to I'm sitting on the edge of my seat crying and feeling and understanding these characters on a deeper level than I ever even thought possible. So the fact that that could happen in just a matter of years makes me go, what other movies might that happen for? Are there any other movies that I was lukewarm on or kind of indifferent to that maybe deserve a second viewing? And conversely, are there any movies that I loved a tremendous amount that I wonder if 35-year-old me would love as well or would still love? So I'm kind of in this mode now where, like, thanks to James Gunn and all and, the, and that first Guardians movie, I'm starting to think it's time to re-explore some films. So I'll kind of keep you posted on those. And, you know, does anyone else want to get in on that with me? Are you a listener or a watcher here on YouTube who would like to do this too, who thinks, you know what, what's a movie that I can give a second shot to? Let me know. Maybe we could do it together. We can compare notes via Twitter. I want to know if anyone else out there is going to give another movie another shot. Because you know what? As it turns out, it can be quite rewarding. Who knew? But, um, all right, so we're going to change up gears a little bit. 
Now it's time to finally circle back to what I teased earlier about Walter Hamada and Jeff Johns and some of the stuff going on over there, because there seem to be some misconceptions. And I feel like, you know, we could use a little clarification here, okay? Because right now things are undoubtedly really, really good if you're a DC fan. If you're not seeing that, and if you're not feeling that, I'm sorry. But things are really, really good right now. Because we've got a new movie coming out in a month that's got all kinds of buzz on it. It's going to be the second consecutive DC movie in a matter of months. Remember, Aquaman came out at the end of December. So with this coming out April 5th, it's like, you know, within a span of four and a half months, DC will have had two really big, really successful films. So if if that doesn't make you happy, if you're not doing backflips, I don't know what to tell you, but here's what I can tell you. You know, for me, I'm I, I'm all in on the Walter Hamada hype train, and let me explain why. Because some of you, you know, the, the the negative view is that why is he changing so much? You know, oh my God, it's it's you know the, the we lost Batman, and it looks like we're losing Superman, and you know we lost Will Smith last week. And they're recasting so many things and yada, yada, yada. But here's the thing. You got to remember, they don't do like the mandates anymore. This is not a producer-driven franchise anymore. Walter Hamada is not the Kevin Feige. This is a different type of universe. This is a different type of franchise than what Marvel Studios is doing. So... He's not going around telling people you can or cannot do this. On the contrary, he's letting filmmakers do what they do. And it's it, it, it's particularly astounding to me, the Batman stuff, because you're losing sight of the timing of things. Reeves got the Batman job in, I want to say, February of 2017. Walter Hamada did not become the president of DC Entertainment until January of 2018. And by the time he came on board, Reeves already had, you know, he was already signed to Batman. He already had his creative control built into into his contract. So the Batman ship had sailed and whatever sort of decisions were going on there, be it on Affleck's part or Reeves' part, that's all kind of out of Hamada's hands at this point. All he can really do now is support Reeves' vision and give him the, you know, what he needs to make that movie become a reality. But he's not really, he didn't, you know, he, he, there's not much he could do about the Batman situation or the Batfleck situation. That's not really a Hamada thing. Okay. Same thing with Superman. You know, with Superman, it's, it's, it's tricky because remember what they're doing more than anything is they're trying to, they're trying to determine the best way forward with him. Because if you're Warner Brothers, you know that there's been some trouble creating a successful, sustainable, solo Superman franchise for quite some time. You know, you, we can go back to 2006 with Superman Returns. We can go back to Man of Steel in 2013. But the studio sees Superman as, you know, they've had a hard time getting him right. So what they're doing right now is rather than rush into a sequel at a time when they're still trying to figure out what they want to do with DC and how people are taking to things like Aquaman and Shazam, they kind of had to be conservative. And now is finally when they're finally able to see whether or not DC has completed the pivot, whether or not general audiences do accept what they're doing, whether or not they are excited about the product. 
And now that they're learning that it is in fact true that DC is like back and that audiences are ready to embrace these films again, you know, now I imagine they're going to be more open to conversations about what to do with Superman one way or the other. But up until this point, they couldn't really do much more than what they're currently doing because they didn't know what they had yet. They still had to see how Aquaman and Shazam would do before they figured out what to do with some of these other big time characters. They had to see if they survived Justice League. You understand? They knew that Justice League was kind of was a black eye on the franchise. And they had to first see, are we going to pull off this rebound or not? Because last thing they could, the last thing you want to do now is race a Man of Steel two into production and try to get a Superman movie into theaters, and then what happens if Aquaman flops? What happens if Shazam is a disaster? Now you're like, oh, now we're gonna send them another Superman movie that they might shrug off like they did the last two. That's gonna piss some people off. I know it. They didn't shrug off Man of Steel, but you know what I mean. Like it didn't. It didn't become the big, you know, monolithic blockbuster franchise that they thought it would become. So right now, you know, they had to be a little gun shy. Let's give Hamada and his studio some patience here because, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, but it's clear that they don't want you to forget about Superman. They want to keep Superman on your mind. So... If you're upset about Superman stuff and Hamada, again, you're not really fully understanding the situation. He really, you know, he did the best thing possible by deciding not to dive right into a sequel last year. I know, and, and that's coming from me, by the way. That's coming from me, the diehard Superman fan. I have made peace with the fact that last year, whatever discussions the two sides had, they decided we're not going to race into a sequel and we're going we're gonna to step away for the time being. I get it. I get it. Because there's really, there was no tangible, explainable reason to rush into a sequel. That's something you, you only do that sort of thing if your last film did so incredibly well and there's this huge groundswell of support for more of this. That unfortunately has not happened for Superman in a very long time. You know, like really since like the 80s. You know what I mean? There hasn't been a Superman movie that got the entire world going, okay, when's the next one? Since maybe Superman 2. So that's why it's like, you know, you got to cut them some slack. And in general, when you understand the way things work at DC Entertainment, Walter Hamada's main responsibility here is not to give mandates, is not to tell creators what they can and cannot create. His thing is to come up with a business model, to come up with a strategy. How do we drop these films in a way that it keeps our audience growing, keeps interest in the brand high, keeps costs low and profits up? That's his main thing. He's more about the business end of all this. He's not on the creative end of all this. So when you guys want to dump on him for some of these little decisions about which characters or which actors, that's not his thing. And in terms of what his thing is, he's doing really well. You know, Aquaman, we've covered this, was made for under $200 million. It was made for somewhere around 150 or 160 and now it's cleared way north of a billion. 
And Shazam, I'm still, guys, I'm pinching myself about Shazam. By the way, I'm sorry my heaters are making a bunch of noise right now. My uh, <laughs> All those cracks, this is what happens. But, um, you know, when it comes to Shazam, if it's really true that he made this for, you know, that David F. Sandberg was able to make this movie for under 100 million bucks, more like 90 million bucks, this is going to be one of the most profitable ventures DC has ever produced. Because what we've got on our hands here with all of this social media buzz and with, you know, just with all the different types of groups that this film appeals to, what we have here is a four quadrant movie made for small movie money. You know, like... Movies like this tend to cost at least 150 million bucks to make. You know, Deadpool was one of the great exceptions because Tim Miller was able to do a lot of the effects in house and he was able to keep production costs low. So they made Deadpool for like, I think, 69 million bucks and then it went on to make, you know, insane numbers for Fox. But I think that's almost like the best comparison here, though, too, because this movie is going to do insane business. I can already see it coming. It appeals to everybody. It Because just a quick reminder, a four-quadrant movie, when you hear reporters or online pundits or anyone talk about a four-quadrant movie, what they're referring to is something that hits the four main things, which is male audiences, female audiences, younger audiences, older audiences. That's what you call a four-quadrant movie. Those are the kind of movies that studios live for. And Shazam is operating on all those levels. If you're a kid, you want to go see it because it looks like a lot of fun and it's superheroes and it's about a kid who becomes a hero. If you're a grown-up, you see it and it looks like Big meets Superman. It looks like, oh, this looks accessible. This doesn't look like it's the follow-up to something, some other nine movies I need to have seen in order to understand it. The trailers sell it as it's, it, 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 it's a fun ride with a relatable lead character and what a novel concept, the idea of a 15-year-old who can basically become Superman by saying a magic word. You know what I mean? So it appeals to the older folks too. It appeals to, you know, it appeals to women because Zachary Levi looks pretty darn good in that suit. And in general, it looks like a heartwarming, funny, sort of family-oriented adventure, too, when you talk about the foster care aspect and his relationship to Freddy and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, guys are going to want to see Shazam knocking Dr. Savannah all over the city and having that big brawl that they're going to have and all the action. Like, it really, it's going to work on so many levels that it's just, it, it, it's, it, it's a beautiful indication of what Hamada brings to the table. Because this is going to be the first movie that was like completely shot, produced, and in post-production under the Hamada regime. So if Shazam is the hit it has every right to be, no one's going to be able to talk crap about Hamada anymore. Because in terms of the actual mission he's here to do, he's succeeding and then some. Um, and now let's talk about our other guy, the other guy in all this, the other sort of guy who's lingering on in the background, who people don't realize how much his presence continues to loom large over all of DC on film. And that's Jeff Johns. 
And this may upset some of you, though anyone who thinks he's a snake or anyone who's upset with him about, you know, personal issues with him and Zack Snyder, all these theories people have about Johns. Um, what they're missing is that his fingerprints are all over all of DC's recent success. And that may be hard for some of you to hear because a lot of you want to think that he got demoted and shown the door last year when really all that happened was he kind of moved positions. He realized, they, and they realized, he's not really cut out to be a studio executive, but they do love him as a producer and as a creative type. Because let's recap a little bit for those of you who are in denial. Or if you're going to have a discussion with someone about this, let's go ahead and give you some ammo that you could point out to people who hate Johns and who are pointing and laughing and think he's gone and out of the loop. Aquaman was inspired by Jeff Johns. His fingerprints are all over it. He had a hand in the story. Shazam. He championed the making of this movie, and he said last December he was a consultant on the movie, and in terms of what it looks like, tonally speaking, it's completely the John's formula. What's the John's formula, folks? The three H's. Heart, humor, heroics. Shazam is a freaking perfect <laughs> pinpoint example of the type of film Jeff Johns thinks works for the audience he the kind of films he wants to see from dc he doesn't want them all to be this way but in terms of heart humor and heroics shazam exemplifies that and then some now let's keep looking forward he's also co-written wonder woman 1984 which let's not forget that's going to be another huge one just like he was very you know he he had an uncredited he did uncredited work on the script for the first film, and he worked very closely with Patty Jenkins, who really thought of him as a wonderful collaborator. She brought him back for Wonder Woman 1984, and let's not forget, that film is probably going to be another ginormous hit for DC Entertainment. And mind you, it's a ginormous hit with Jeff Johns' fingerprints on it. Again. And then what do we got coming after that, folks? He's producing and writing a Green Lantern Corps movie. So you tell me where it looks like Jeff Johns got fired and demoted and shown the door. Go ahead. I'll, I'll wait here. Okay, I'm not trying to be that smug. But the point is, people don't realize that we are living actually in the Jeff Johns era of DC on film. They just did it very subtly and very covertly because after all of the negative spin, you know, after all the negativity that was heaped on them, because of Justice League, they kind of wanted to put some distance between themselves and anyone involved with Justice League. They wanted to kind of go, all right, well, we're moving away from that. And kind of, you know, in the eyes of the public, demoting Jeff Johns gave the impression that, oh, okay, they're on the case. They're not going to have a repeat of Justice League again. They got rid of Jeff Johns and now everything is new, new, new. But that's the thing. It's not really true. If you look at all the big films that are coming and the tones of the films that are finding the most success, they are all in the Jeff Johns mold. So just keep that in mind next time someone tells you that Jeff Johns got fired or that Jeff Johns is not somehow responsible for a lot of the great success that DC on film is having now. And I know a bunch of you still want to get mad at him for Justice League, and that's completely your choice. I support you. I respect you. But you have to understand that Johns was put in a thankless position 
And maybe he put himself there. You know, I wasn't in the rooms. But when you look at the timing of everything, there are very few people who could have made a success out of the situation these people were in. Because with everything that happened with Justice League, the primary cause for the issues with that film was not the rewrites. It was not Joss Whedon. It was not even Zack Snyder. It was, it, was noth it was nobody on that level. It was whoever decided that we're not going to delay this film. That person is the villain behind Justice League. That is the person who deserves all of your scorn. And honestly, I don't even, I don't have an answer for you as to who we can specifically blame for that decision. But if you're Jeff Johns, you're told Justice League is going to be filming in a matter of months. Meanwhile, the film that is supposed to lead to it, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, opens on March 26th and the test audiences aren't liking it and the studio is very anxious about what's going to happen with this movie so they cut off a half hour of its running time and they and they jump into David Ayer's editing bay and start switching around Suicide Squad but they're not going to delay Justice League so they ask you Jeff Johns to now take a crack at the script for a film that's filming in a couple of months that a plan was already set for. This is supposed to be Justice League 1 that gave way to Justice League 2. Like all of this stuff was already put in place. And now they're going, hey, Jeff, um, can you save Justice League for us, but not have any extra time in doing so? You know, like it's, it's an insane situation. So he basically had to like, help rewrite and reform a movie as it's leaving the station. Can you imagine how hard that would be? Can you imagine if there's someone in the kitchen cooking a huge meal for 30 people in the dining room and then most of the way, you know, like they've already begun preparing it all. Everything's marinating, the oven's preheating, everything's going. And then all of a sudden someone comes and grabs you throws you in the kitchen and says, actually, can you fix this dinner? We can already tell that this dinner is not going to be up to snuff for the 30 people waiting outside the kitchen. So we need you to go in there. And even though everything's already been seasoned, even though we've already bought all the supplies, we don't necessarily have time to go out and buy additional items. We want you to go into this kitchen and remake this entire dinner or make this entire dinner more palatable for those 30 people. And you tell me how easy it is to go in there and pull that off. You know, it's, it's an insane situation with a high probability of failure and a very low probability of success. So Johns went into Justice League with the film already about to start filming and had to help rewrite it without being given any extra time. And having to do it, mind you, with actors at different levels of commitment level. Remember, Ben Affleck, by that point, was already kind of starting to be over it. He already saw what happened with BVS when they cut off the half hour from the theatrical cut and now they had to make a separate Ultimate Edition. He was already kind of like, you know... I'm gonna, I have a report coming up about Affleck's departure, so I guess I'll save some of that for that. But, you know, if you're Jeff Johns and you're looking at the situation, you are in a thankless position right now because you have an unhappy A-lister in your cast. You have a Batman v Superman movie that did not do what you thought it was going to do and now kind of puts you in the hole for Justice League as opposed to giving you all this momentum for Justice League. 
and you got to try to salvage this thing. It is not easy, especially, mind you, if you're Jeff Johns, because we know that he was not a huge fan of the way Snyder approached these characters. You know, it's a, it's a matter of personal opinion, but he was not really in love with these characters to begin with, you know, in terms of these versions. This version of Superman, we all know, is not the version of Superman that Jeff Johns really believes in. You know, all these versions of these characters that were introduced in BVS, he had no real say in helping to form them. So now he's given Justice League with these versions of these characters that he's not really high on and told, can you take these sort of imperfect versions and make them perfect, sort of all within one movie? You know, so again, it all goes to the point that Jeff Johns gets so much heat and so much hatred for what happened on Justice League, but really very few people could have made that work. And... Meanwhile, the studio seems to acknowledge that because rather than just get rid of him and show him the door forever, he's still very much involved, just in a slightly different role now. Um, and I just want you, I want you guys to know that because, yeah, I, I think he gets a bad rap. I, I think the same thing about someone else in this whole process, by the way. But I'm not, I'm not about to go off on a defense of Joss Whedon because I don't want to get inundated with hate this week. I've gotten enough of that these last few weeks, if you know what I mean. But he's another one, which by the way, it's not very different than the John scenario I described. And on the contrary, if we can build on the scenario that I just used, go with the kitchen idea, and you have 30 hungry guests outside waiting for a delicious dinner, and Jeff Johns steps out of the kitchen and says, okay, the food is now mostly cooked. We're entering into the stage now where we're supposed to be plating it and getting ready to serve it. But instead of that, can you go in there and recook a bunch of it and change some of the side dishes? And you know, we're, we're, the, 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 the main course, we, we don't really want to do that main course anymore. Now, instead of a roast beef, we want a beef stew. Can you turn the roast beef into beef stew? So Joss Whedon, same thing. He, he walked into a kitchen now that where, where, where the bad meal was already even further along. It's already been cooked. The film was already in post-production. They had completed all of principal photography. And then they go, hey, Joss, can you um, redo a ton of this for us? But we're not going to delay the release date and we're not going to give you more time. Why would we do that? So right now, dinner is being served in a half hour. Go into the kitchen. Do what you got to do. I'll be sitting outside. Bye, buddy. Like, that's what they did to Whedon, too. And listen, he's no victim. He did the best he could and some of his decisions worked. Some of them didn't, but it's hard to get too mad. By the way, I love how I said I wasn't going to try to defend Whedon, but I did it anyway. Um, but it's just, it's an interesting, thankless position to be put into. And I think both of those gentlemen get way too much hate for a position very, for being put in a position that very few of us could have gone into and created a success for. Personally, I probably would have just made a bunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and told everyone, deal with it. I'll see you next week. But, you know, they tried to make it work. It didn't necessarily work out for them. But we really got to realize that Johns and Whedon were not the enemies of Justice League. And neither was Zack Snyder.
It's who, whatever executives push this thing into production in the state that it was in. And then when they realized it still wasn't where it needed to be, then decided we're still not going to change the release date, but we're going to bring in a whole other director to rewrite a huge chunk of the script and reshoot a huge ton of the movie and release it at the same time as originally scheduled. That person is your snake. That person is your enemy. That person is who you should be upset with. Not Jeff Johns, not Joss Whedon. I'm sorry. And by the way, while we're in this space, I'm going to tell you the hot take that I'm scared to say in public. I'm only going to tell you guys. Are you ready? <clears throat> I rather enjoyed the Superman in Justice League. And yes, the, 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 the upper lip looked pretty crappy. But overall, I enjoyed that Superman. So with that in mind, and here it comes. Oh, I'm really asking for it now. But I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it. Had they announced, like a week after Justice League came out, that Joss Whedon was going to make a Superman movie with Henry Cavill, I would have been really happy. <laughs> so... That is the opinion that I've been scared to share in public. I don't know. I wasn't planning on saying it here today, but why not? Um, there you go. You, you now know one of my hottest takes as a fan of DC on film right now. I would have totally hired Joss Whedon to make a Superman movie in a heartbeat based on what he did with the character in Justice League. I hate to break it to you, folks. Um, and I also hate to break it to you, Chase Smith, once again. Uh, we're going to have to hold off on the Superman movie pitch again this week because, you know, there's just been a lot to talk about that's a lot more urgent, unfortunately, than a Superman movie since, you know, the, for better or worse, we're not getting one for a little bit. It's going to be a couple of years. Um, but I, you know, I'm thinking of actually making a separate video just for the Superman pitch, just to kind of put all of my ideas in one key place so that if ever anyone asks me that question, because I get that question, the, all right, well, what kind of Superman movie would you like? Like, I get that question a lot whenever I say that I wasn't really in love with Man of Steel or BVS. And I want to be able to be like, oh, you want to know? Here. <laughs> so so I'm thinking of doing a, a video just for my Superman, you know, my dream Superman movie, just so you guys can see what it is that I would love to see happen one day, the way I would like to see the character handled. Because some of you seem interested in that. So that's kind of cool to me because I've been cooking up my dream Superman movie since I was like eight. So if I get to share it with you, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be very happy to do so. But, you know, with regard to soups. You know, some of you asked me to talk about The Last Son of Krypton today on this show. And I'm going to, but it's going to involve some slight spoiler stuff for a movie that's coming out. So before I do, I want to give you guys ample time to make the decision whether or not you want to proceed. And I'll even say something else that's not spoilerish first before we get into it to give you really time to think about whether or not you want to stick around for the rest of this episode. But on the other on the other end of the world's finest, I can't talk about Superman without getting into spoilers. I can talk about Batman, though. 
just a quick update in terms of you know the the big story, the the, the Army Hammer Batman story. Some of you want to know if, if I have any updates on that. All I have to say is right now it's one of those like no news is good news scenarios because I did I did check in with my source earlier this week, my primary on this, and they said once again, continue to be still, continue to hold steady. As far as everything that's been discussed, they've not. You know, there's no reason to think that anything has changed from when I reported what I reported three weeks ago. So for the time being. I'm holding, I'm holding steady. I'm holding firm. I haven't heard anything that makes me feel more confident. I haven't heard anything that makes me feel less confident. I've just heard nothing has changed since what we told you a few weeks ago. So I'm sticking with that, folks. Um, and now is your chance to hop off before we get into any Superman stuff. If you are going to hop off, please consider leaving me a review over on Apple Podcasts or over on iTunes. Uh, you know, every little bit helps and all that good stuff. But thank you for joining me for episode 90. And now we're going to get into some spoiler-ish territory here. All right. So, um, now that Shazam is out, now that Shazam is screening, now that people are actually seeing what will be presumably the final cut of the film. Which, by the way, there is an asterisk on that still. But now that people are seeing it, now there's a little bit of Superman information to sort of share. So, remember about a month ago, I told you that at the last test screening, there was a generic Superman cameo in it. And then someone, you know, Jim Viscardi over from comicbook.com said that there was another Superman cameo shot that actually did include Henry Cavill. Mind you, it wasn't the same scene. It wasn't like they shot the scene two different ways. It's a different type of scene. One of them, you know, it's, you know, it's a it's Superman with Shaz with Billy and one of them is Superman with Shazam and you know there, there's slight variations. It's not so it's not the same scene. But there was this feeling of, all right, so there's two versions of a Superman cameo. Which one will they go with? That's going to be very revealing. You know, that was the thought. And now that the film is in near complete form and people are actually seeing it, critics are watching it, fan screenings. Like we, I, I had someone go check it out in Miami last night. How you doing, Jason? How did it go? Let me know. Um, you know, now that people, now that people are seeing it, I've gotten confirmation that they went with the generic Superman cameo. Now, what's interesting though is it's so hard to know how to feel about that i mean overall i feel great because this means i'm going to get to see some variation of superman on the big screen in less than a month probably in a couple of weeks i have I'm, I'm, I'm going to be attending a press screening here in new york but i get to see superman on tv uh, on a screen i get to hear him spoken of in 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 beautiful ways i get to see how he inspires someone i get to know that superman is a beacon of hope in this DC on film, I'm all in. But in terms of using this to make a decision as to whether or not we think Henry is coming back or if they're rebooting or any of that stuff, it's really hard to tell how to feel. Because on the one hand, it's generic, right? So that would imply that they're not really feeling the Henry thing and that they are, in fact moving on and they're going to recast and they're going to move on. Maybe they're going to pull like an Idris Elba and Will Smith where they, you know, 
They're just going to swap him out for another big actor and not bat an eyelash. But what's interesting is that the suit, I'm told, is the Justice League suit. And that's a very specific version of Superman. You know, that S is the Snyder S. The, the, that texture, that design, that look, the way, it, you know, that's not from the comics. That is the Henry Cavill, Zack Snyder Superman. Granted, you know, it's, hopefully it doesn't look as overexposed as it did in the, in the theatrical cut of Justice League. Hopefully they're able to do the color corrections so you don't see the muscle padding under it this time. But I was told it, it's the Justice League suit. And it's funny because if you look around, people are seeing it as 100% confirmation of one thing or another. And it's really kind of funny to see. Some people see that as, all. Oh, see, it's 100% confirmed then that they're not bringing back Henry Cavill because if they were, then why didn't they show his face? This is it, folks. Accept it. Deal with it. Move on. Henry's gone. But you can also make the opposite argument, couldn't you? The fact that they went with that costume as opposed to something that's a little more generic because they could have gone something that's just, you know, that looks more like a standard with the red trunks or just a, the, the, the type of like generic standard S that you see on your typical Superman t-shirt, not the Snyder S. You know, they could have gone for something that's a little more just, here's the general idea of what Superman looks like, just to let you know that this is Superman. Or they could have gone the way they did and shown here is the suit worn by the same Superman that you've been watching since 2013. So that's why I say the other side can totally be like, well, no, then that means that that Superman is still canon, that Henry is still the guy, and they just chose this scene just to give themselves some, some open-endedness for after the fact. And, you know, I really, I, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of it, but for the time being, I'm just trying to be excited that I'm going to see Superman on the big screen. Um, and it's very just, it's very intriguing to me to see how, how the studio digests all this stuff. How, you know, how will the success of Shazam impact a potential Superman film? I, you know, th this is all just going to be very interesting to keep tabs on. But, yeah, I did just kind of wanted to go ahead and confirm for you guys that, yes, in fact, there is a Superman cameo in Shazam. As I said, there would be last year, uh, last, uh, I want to say I broke that story in, like, January or February of 2018. But they went with the generic version. Um, and now, just because, you know, this is what I do, I like to stir the pot a little bit. But, you know... <sighs> I wouldn't put it past DC to add something else to the movie before it comes out. Because let's not forget, and I tweeted about this the other day, but I know not all of you are Twitter people. I tweeted this the other day that when Justice League started doing its own advanced screenings, which it did like you know two or three weeks out, where it was having critics come and it even did some fan screenings. Um, when they did that, it did not include the Legion of Doom tease. They added that after the fact. And I, I remember that vividly. 
because, you know, our friends over at Batman on Film, you know, they attended one of those screenings and they told me like, no, it's only the Flash and Superman thing, the, the, the race at the end of Justice League. That was the only one. There was nothing at the end of the credits. So I only bring that up just because I think people should file that away in the backs of their minds. That just because Shazam has begun to screen doesn't necessarily mean that everything is set in stone. Something could still get added later. So, you know, I, I just, I'm not trying to instill false hope, but I do just want people to know their history. I want you to remember that this kind of thing can and will happen. I also love to point out what happened with the Avengers, how they filmed that, you know, the, the, the infamous shawarma scene at the end of Avengers. They shot that like 10 days before the movie came into wide release. It was something insane like that. So, you know, you never know. And that's the fun of all this stuff. You never know exactly what's going to happen. But I would say for now, similar to what I said two or three weeks ago, you know, don't buy anyone who speaks in absolutes on what's going on with Superman. You know, I, I feel like there's still a chance that things could change. Or thing, you know, they, they could still hem and haw a little bit as to whether or not to reboot or simply recast or just keep on trudging along with what they've already got and just try to hope they can put a fresh coat of paint on it. You know, there's a chance that any one of those things can happen still. So, you know, for the time being... Believe whatever you want to believe, because I think all options in some way, shape or form are still on the table. But you know what, folks? That is enough out of me for episode 90 of the Fanboy Podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed the show today. And, uh, you know, please, if you feel so inspired, go leave me a review or tell a friend about the show. Because, uh, you know, it doesn't suck for more people to discover what we're doing here at Revenge of the Fans. Uh, if I'm going to see you tonight at the Revenger Watch Party, just know I am extremely excited to do that tonight at 7, so I'll see you then. For the rest of you, have a phenomenal weekend. Have fun loving the things you love and not hating the things that you don't love. Just kind of ignoring them. Focus. Go to where your love is. Can you try that for me this week? Go towards your love. Don't feed into your hate. I think, I think it might give you a better week. I don't know. Maybe. But everyone, thank you so much for, for, for checking me out. And uh, it really means the world to me. So everyone, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.